Tonight on Arena, Colin Barrett's novel Wild Houses and new albums from The Smile, Future Islands and New Dad all up for review and conductor Blondet Murphy on the cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach. Five one double five one is the text you can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. When Colin Barrett's first short story collection, Young Skins, came out in 2014, I remembered winning the Rooney Prize, the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Prize and the Guardian First Book Award. Much excitement around his writing at that time. Judging panels were in accord with what readers already knew. Here was an exceptional new writer, an impression reinforced by the appearance of his second collection, which was called Homesickness, and we got that in 2022. So it's fair to say that Wild Houses in Colin Barrett's much-anticipated debut novel. Two small-town hoodlums, Gabe and Sketch, kidnap Doll English, the younger brother of another small-town hoodlum in a row about unpaid debt. Debt, I beg your pardon. The kidnappers bring their hostage to the remote house of their first cousin, Dev, while Doll's girlfriend, Nikki, tries to find him. Miriam McGill has been reading Colin Barrett's first novel for us, and she joins us now from Galway. Um, Colin has recently returned to Colin Barrett. Mary has recently returned to Ireland after a few years in Canada. But Mayo, which is where this uh, novel is set, it's always kind of been his fictional stomping ground, hasn't it? Yes, I think that's very true, Sean. His writing always strikes me and, and all those you know, short story collections that you mentioned there that mm. have been so well received. He really is a master at such a young age of the short story format. But they always strike me as like these quiet gut punches set in these rural landscapes. And quite often it is Mayo. But sometimes I feel that Mayo, you know, it's, it's a character in his yeah. work, but it's almost a kind of a proxy for, for any part of rural Ireland. And what he does so well, I think, with the short story format and with, and with rural Ireland itself, is that he can he takes those contexts he takes that that format and he makes you know what is traditional about them so utterly modern and yeah. i think that is a real f- feature of, of uh, wild houses as well yeah. and i'll tell you i was a little bit concerned because as we have established he is very very good very very good at the yeah. short story what would he do with a novel um and that is that is the, that is the that challenge, was the big here, challenge right? for him yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is you know you, you hear all oh, all is set in rural ireland all is set in the west in the west and mm. you're right it could be anywhere in ireland really and truly um, and this is contemporary rural Ireland. Yeah. Put out, put out, put out of your mind any ideas about a lovely rural idyll and uh, squelchy, boggy language and stuff like that. This is not the world that Colin Barrett uh, presents to us. It's very much, I suppose, the small town rural Ireland and that kind of mini urban quality that exists in many small towns around the country. Yes, absolutely. And kind of disaffected youth that are going mm. nowhere quickly. I think Gabe and Sketch, who you mentioned, the the, the evil Ferdier brothers, they probably fancy themselves as like small town pulp fiction, yeah. you know, style gangsters. <laughs> they are absolutely not. And I think Barrett, you know, there's a real lovely flavour of knowing humour that runs through this novel. And that's exactly what he is poking you know the stick at is is if you're from rural ireland and contemporary rural ireland like you know these characters you know these people they're in they're in every small town that you can think of and it is this sense of i mean it takes place over uh, the weekend of the ballina salmon festival but that's neither here nor there sean like that that world you know that world of kind of the, the mm. postcard rural ireland 
that that's on a in a, yeah. almost in a parallel universe to, to the characters' lives and what they're going through over the weekend. I think many would argue that that world is in the parallel universe to what many people in rural Ireland actually <laughs> experience as their everyday life. Um, uh, Gabe and Sketch, the, the two cousins, are they're, they're, they're two brothers. Um, their cousin Dev. I mean, the names mm. are brilliant. G- yes. Gabe, Sketch, Doll, Nikki. You know these people. You know them. Like I mean, yeah. I, I've read them, and I, I think that this is something else about this novel as well. I mean, the truth of it is just—it's on every page, Sean. You know, yeah. you know these people, and you know, you, you know, um, the character of Dev, really, who you mentioned there. I mean, he is the, the beating heart of this novel in so many ways. And he's a very interesting character for mm. for many reasons. There's a kind of a a loneliness uh, about him. He's very isolated. His mother has recently died. Um, it, his father. He's estranged from the father. His father lives in a place called The Units, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, a difficult enough place for anybody to be. You might explain what The Units are. But let, let's concentrate on Dev, first of all. And the nature of that character, as you say, is, is our guide and the beating heart of the novel. Yeah, so Dev is a very physically imposing person. He's a fine, big, strapping lad, um, I suppose you could say. And he lives uh, almost as a recluse at this point in his life in, in this remote um, farmhouse. His mother's recently died. He is estranged from his father, who is living in these, what's known locally as the units, which is basically supported living for mm. those with mental health difficulties. The only company he really has is his mother's scrappy dog, Georgie, who kind of hates him. They just barely tolerate each other. And his cousins, the, the Ferdias, have... On the one hand, kind of, you know, taking him under their wing, they're visiting him, but they're also kind of using yeah. him. So they're using him on behalf of their boss to store drugs and various other things. Yeah, so Gabe and Sketch, uh, the two brothers, are the cousins of Dev. Yes, exactly that. But Dev, Dev is somebody who, and, and this is what Barrett does so well as, you know, over the course of the novel through flashbacks and, and, and other devices, he's somebody who is very outwardly quiet, but inside his inner world is as rich and as tense and as dramatic as you can imagine. Like Dev is struggling with all kinds of demons. He's also very, very funny. And there are passages where he is, you know, kind of reflecting on, we'll say, for example, something you wouldn't necessarily think of as humorous, but his experiences, you know, with, with mental health services here in Ireland. And you kind of get a sense of, you know, somebody who is struggling for connection, but is kind of trying to navigate yeah. this this bizarre world of bureaucracy, but also kind of the futility of it all, Sean. Like, you know, he's had such a difficult life. Um, it's like, how do you break out of that? How do you connect? How do you push mm. back against this personal and landscape of loneliness? And and you, the, 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 his cousins, Gabe and Sketch, are kind of enforcers type of thing for the local yes. drug dealer, aren't they? Drug, local drug lord. And then... They're trying to get money off a guy who's not paying up his debts, yes. uh, Killian English. And it's mm-hmm. Killian English's younger brother is the poor guy who's taken hostage effectively, 17 yes. year old. I mean, is he is he in a world where he's totally out of his depth or how does he fit into it? Well, it's the world's shoddiest kidnapping. I'll, I'll give that uh, to the Ferdias for sure. So Dahl is, is a good-natured young lad. Mm. And when he arrives in the house, obviously under duress, but straight away the dog takes him. You know, the dog doesn't like anyone, but he likes Dahl. Um, and uh, Dahl obviously doesn't want to be in the situation. Dev does not want to be in the situation. But as we've established, he's, he's beholding to the yeah. Ferdias. You know, they're his, one of his few connections to the external world. They're also a source of a bit of income. So Dahl is, um, Dahl's basically 
at the mercy of these two lads. Dev is trying to keep him reasonably comfortable. He doesn't want anything really to do with this situation, but he's not good at standing up for himself. Mm. And we learned that part of the reason for this is obviously he's got a, he's got a difficult home life, but he was very, very seriously bullied as a young uh, man in school, yeah. and he's never fully recovered from that. And he does have a girlfriend, Nikki, a 17-year-old, who's very worried Dull. about him. Don does, does have a yeah. girlfriend. Yes, he does indeed. And Nikki, again, no more than Dev, is kind of the stoic character with this really yeah. rich complex in her life. And I suppose she is at a crossroads herself. Does she stay with this quasi family she's built for herself with, with Dov, Doll and, and his older brother and, and their mother? She herself is an orphan. Her parents have died from cancer. Or does she, you know, leave, head, head for college, something yeah. cut loose, exactly. Imagine a different future. And, you know, in some ways when we're describing it here, it sounds like a very plot-driven book and it sounds like almost, a, you know, a crime fiction type of setup. That mm. would be misleading to send listeners off with that idea. Because even though it's set over a weekend and that gives it a certain um, kind of time frame that pushes the action along, it's not about what's happening. It's about the inner world of these characters. Yes, it's about inner worlds, uh, life experiences and how they shape our motivations and decisions in the present. So, yes, we have this framework of the kidnapping and that's great Mm. for humour and it's great for, you know, what I will say about it is, you know, it's not particularly high stakes, Sean, right? There is a sense of violence there. There is a sense that something could go wrong. It could escalate. But that's not what propels this novel. What propels this novel are those moments when, Barrett writes in such a way that he doesn't he doesn't you know commit that writing sin of um telling rather than showing he shows you so intimately that you feel the truth of these characters lives on mm. the page and that is what that is what propels this novel it doesn't need any kind of showy devices because the writing yeah. and the capturing of life is so rich yet he does employ um the flashback which can be yes. quite distracting in a book you know he sometimes well keep me with the action why are you telling me what happened you know <laughs> back in the day but he he does this in a way that I think still holds our attention because it really adds to the tapestry gives more texture to the tapestry that he's presenting a hundred percent and you know you mentioned crime fiction there like the flashback can be used well in crime Mm, fiction mm. it can also be used very very badly and very very cheaply clunkily it has to be said but here again you know it's this it's it's not quite stream of consciousness, but it's this, his ability to render consciousness in such a way that he is he is showing you without ever spelling it out th- these motivations. So why doesn't Dev tell you know his horrible cousins to get out of his house and take this poor man with them, or he's going to ring the guards? Like why does he not do that? Well, he tells us. Barrett tells us through his description and depiction of everything that Dev has been through. So he do, it, doesn't, mm. it doesn't need to be spelled out. We understand on a deeply human level why Dev does what he does. Yeah. And the story is all the more affecting for that. Now, we've, you've spoken uh, at the beginning in particular, Mary, about um, the, the nature of Colin Barrett's short stories and the success mm. that they have uh, given him. Has he, has he really given us the, the full arc of a novel in this book? He has, sure. I mean, I had, I, re, I, mean, I was going, am I sitting in January reading the book of the year or a book of the year? I think I, I, think I possibly am. Um, I think he really, really has. But what, he's, what he has done, though, as well, is that he said the confidence of his, his ability with the short story to hold what is really profound a great, about great short stories, which is those quiet moments of reflection 
and quiet moments of tension and drama that works so well in a short story. And he has managed through that gift that he has for this, you know, rendering of characters in inner worlds to make that the engine that drives what is a full length and very satisfying novel. And I should also say a special word as well about the language, his ability to write metaphor and description and so on. You know, it's striking when you're dealing with a writer that can still find original ways to, to describe things like the dark or the mm. wind or whatever the case may be, but he is one of those writers. So absolutely, 10 out of 10, he has done it. He has jumped from the short story to the novel. And I think, you know, when the end of the year rolls around and we're looking at best of lips lists, I'd be right. very surprised if this wasn't on it. Any caveats around the book, Mary? Any caveats around the book? Um, I think for some readers, they may find it slow. I think for some readers, they may find it slow. You know, I, need, I know the short story format as well is not for everyone. Mm. Um, but if it is, if you have enjoyed his short stories, if you like um, great literary contemporary writing, I think you will be, you'll just have so much to enjoy here. All right, that's Mary McGill speaking to us about Wild Houses by Colin Barrett, which is published by Jonathan Cape. For the first time in over a decade, the tradition of performing the church cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach returns to Dublin with a series of three concerts taking place in St Anne's Church in, on Dawson Street in Dublin on Sunday the 20th of January, February the 4th of February and February the 11th. It's said that Bach composed hundreds of these church cantatas. About 200 of them have survived to this day. With me in studio, Blonald Murphy, Artistic Director of the series, who's considered one of our foremost interpreters of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, particularly the choral side and she has conducted the majority of Bach's major choral works, including over 80 cantatas. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a few, Blonde. Um, maybe, maybe just to, to put in context what Bach did, you know, week after yeah. week <laughs> with it's, these it's, cantatas. Well, it's extraordinary. <clears throat> when yeah. he was appointed <clears throat> cantor in the Thomas Kirche in Leipzig, at least for five years, every single week, except in Lent when they didn't have cantatas, he not only did he compose the cantata each week, mm. he had to get it written out, get people to write it out. It also had to be rehearsed and trained up with the boys and uh, in the school and then done on the Sunday. So it was extraordinary. So that was kind of as well as everything else yeah. he was doing. Well, I know? remember Christoph Wolf, the musicologist, saying that um, as soon as he had had his lunch with his up to 20 uh, children at the table mm. he then had to go over to the woman's room in the house and immediately write the big choruses for next Sunday because they had to be written out yeah. then he did the arias because they were less but still had to be written out and then the recitatives were the quickest to write out and then on top of that he was his job meant he was also looking over the choristers in terms of their well-being and his accommodation was attached to the whole complex of mm. the school so yeah he was a very busy man and, and there are two aspects to how he would have gone about this I suppose obviously the the cantata for whatever Sunday it was mm. at whatever part of the liturgical mm. year the cantata had to reflect the the mood of that particular yes. time of the liturgical year whether it was celebratory whether mm. it was reflective whether it was grief stricken mm. whatever it was it had to do that but it also had to maybe he, he got a little bit of a thrill out of who was around town? I know if there was a bassoon <laughs> player or a, or a well-known singer coming in or a, an oboe player that was particularly well-known, he, of course, he used them and incorporated them. So it was a real man working on, literally on the job, creating 
one masterpiece after the next. How religious a man was he? You know, because oh, he had to he had to fundamentally understand yeah. the, the liturgy that yes. he was composing for. He was very well known as a theologian. People mm. people sought his advice on things, and a profoundly religious man. So he didn't actually have to write. Uh, a new work every single week. He could have recycled things or he could have used works by other composers. So what he did was way well and way above anything that was actually expected as a cantor. Um, and I just marvel. I mean, I <laughs> I feel putting on three concerts is a lot. When I actually consider that week in, week out, rigorous regime, I, I, I just, it's mind-boggling. So it's, it's three different cantatas we get across the three weeks or do we get more than oh, we three? We get uh, eight cantatas. Eight cantatas in total. Yeah, so it's a... Uh, yeah, that's um, hopefully a good display of, of Bach's. Yeah, so you, you can you can just you can manage about to perform two a week then or two in one concert. Is that we're doing roughly th- how well, it works? In the first two concerts, we're doing three three, and then we're doing two longer ones in the third mm, concert. On the final one, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, it, but that that's a packed schedule, <laughs> and you've you've had probably a lot of time to prepare for that. Well, I feel a little bit like we're scrabbling after Christmas, but we're we're, we're getting there. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you 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 suggested two different cantatas. Uh, 12 and 72, are they going to be performed in this series of eight? Yes. They, yeah, so it makes sense that we should kind of use those. And we'll start with the, what, what I think is the more reflective one. I was kind of surprised in some ways. This is uh, Cantata number 12, BWV 12, the Cantata that has the, the title, um, is it Vinen, Klagen, Sorgen, Tagen, which is basically weep, grief, yeah. shout, give out, cry, wail. And the reason I wanted to uh, mm. have this piece is that um, 30 years later, Bach went back to that cantata and took this movement and reworked it as the crucifixus in the B minor mass. So he remembered it had been a powerful movement. Yeah, the B minor mass, of course, would be one of the absolute highlights of of the choral compositional life of Mm. of Johann Sebastian Bach. But um, in this in this cantata, were, what what part of the were, were a few? Is it the third or fourth Sunday after Easter that this was mm. composed? Which I, I would have thought would have been. Are we not in joyous mood post Easter? I know. Um, it's very much about the anguish, but then that through redemption we can. All ah, right. So yeah. the the anguish has to be expressed yeah, yeah. first, and the opening chorus is very is, much so. is where we get that anguish. Let anguish rather. Let's have a listen. Opening of the very first chorus in the cantata BWV 12 of Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the eight that Blondie Murphy mm-hmm. and her cohorts will be performing over the coming three Sundays at St Anne's Church in, uh, in I was going to say Dunleary, it's in Dawson, on Dawson Street mm-hmm. in Dublin. Um, just to give a sense of what's involved in each, in each cantata then as well, uh, Blondie, and how you're going to realise it here. Obviously, there's a chorus there. In the case of the recording we're listening to there, there's an organ in the background, but it can be a variety of instrumental setups. Yeah, there, I mean, very commonly, there was an opening chorus, various arias and recitatives, and a final uh, hymn tune chorale setting. But uh, there's so many exceptions that you, mm. you almost couldn't say a norm, but there's... there's the hymn tunes are very, very important. You often get them accompanying an aria as a, you know, a, a tune on its own, or you get them interwoven. Mm. Or, uh, 
And then you get these incredible displays of different instruments, different obligatos. Uh, the continuo, of course, is massively important. Especially that being the, the harpsichord, or harpsichord yeah. and, and cello or, or possibly yeah. organ and cello organ, would do it as well, wouldn't it? And we luckily have Malcolm Proud playing, which is really wonderful. So is he going to play the harpsichord for these? It's going to be the actual chamber organ he's going right. to bring with him. And in actual fact, we, we're quite lucky that the leader of the orchestra, uh, Therese Timoney, she played in the very first bar cantatas, which were under John Beckett. So that's a really nice link. She also played in many of the ones in the complete 10-year cycle, and she's now leading the orchestra for this series. Yeah, talk to me a bit about that 10-year cycle, which was a, a period of time. When when was it? Well, it was, was firstly was a 10-year cycle, not the complete cantatas at that mm. time, but with John Beckett, the very famous conductor, with a wonderful lineup. There was um, Bernadette Grevy, Irene Stanford. Because as well as the choruses, there are soloists Huge soloists. Frank Patterson and Bill Young. That was a wonderful time. And then Lindsay Armstrong used to put on cantatas on a regular basis. And then in 2001, he decided to do the complete Bach uh, surviving cantatas, uh, sort of over 200 cantatas uh, in 60 concerts over 10 years, was six each year. That's that was an exceptional learning curve in, t- in terms of And you education. conducted, how many of those did you say? You well, I know I conducted about 80 cantatas, so it was a lot of concerts. <laughs> yeah. A fair few of those. And and I suppose the other aspect that you were telling me before we came to air is in the midst of thinking, right, well, we have all of the surviving cantatas, we have them all now, let's get on with performing them over the over this 10-year uh, period. Then what happened? <laughs> well, and we had Christoph Wolf contact us to say there's a new aria had been found, a soprano aria. Uh, which had been nobody known about, and of course we quickly put it into the program. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Had, you had, had to, to, you had, had to be to. completest. You had to be completest uh, uh, about the whole thing, and so the, the, this orchestra is specifically put together for this series of concerts. Yes, people and who love Bach and who are experienced and have a real. Mm. If you're a Bach lover, you really are a Bach lover. Yeah, and of. and in terms of the Dublin Bach singers who will be providing the chorus, mm. you have various soloists in, involved across all of the cantatas, yes. I guess, because there are different requirements. But your own singers, the Dublin Bach singers are involved. They're, yeah, they're singing in the first and the third concert. And then in the centre, we have Continuum Youth Choir, all former choristers of the Palestrina Choir and the Pro Cathedral Girls Choir. So um, it's kind of really exciting to see them tackle that as well. Because Bach would have written, essentially the, the choruses would have been written for young voices, wouldn't they? Well, in fact, the whole thing was, was performed by the Thomas Kierke uh, um, School. The school the in, in even the solo even the yeah, soloists yes. so that the, those solo parts would have been sung by young boys and, the, and there may have been like a, a visiting tenor yeah. bass but yeah. for the most part the whole thing was covered that's what amazes me in those days of course boys voices broke a little bit later about the age of 17 or so approximately so I suppose they were a little bit more mature but still having worked with boys and you know, it, it takes a lot of work to, to produce They're that. They're energetic. They are, to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> um, the cantata, do we refer to it as cantata number 72 or do we say BWV 72, well, that cantata, I think it doesn't matter. Cantata 12, or, which are either, either way. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the second piece that you suggested we might listen to, this one yeah. is a, a, kind of for this time of year, isn't it? Or was composed for around this time yes, of year. Yes, it was. And it's very contrasting to the other piece in that it's utterly flamboyant and bombastic and a wonderfully energetic piece. Yeah, so it was post-Epiphany and things are good. Things, <laughs> things are good, good <laughs> in the Christian world at this point in time. Yeah, there we had um, part of the opening chorus of Cantata 72 of Johann Sebastian Bach, one of those that will be performed at the concerts Blonde and Murphy is telling us about this evening. Yeah, clearly 
in much more joyous mood there. And I was asking you as as we were listening to that, Blonnet, about the nature of you. You said that it often, often the cantata would finish with a big chorale, which you know, if we think of the four part chorale that Bach would have composed where the congregation would have sung along and there was one word per mm. syllable, one note per syllable. You could hear the words, you could make out the words and everybody could sing their mm. part in the midst of it. Does he give us that kind of rigid type of chorale in the cantatas? Well, sometimes, um, but often, of course, being Bach, he you may, you may have, for example, the soprano parts and then the other parts be very florid and wonderfully um, complex and mm. vibrant. For example, one of the cantatas on Sunday, cantata 61, ends with one of those chorales, they're called. But in actual mm. fact, it's very virtuosic for the choir. Yeah. Um, now that you've... Because had, things had fallen away for a period of time. There hadn't been cantatas mm. performed in, the, uh, on this, mm. in this fashion in Dublin. Now that you've started, <laughs> will, you, will you continue any chance of another 10-year cycle? Well, we'd love to continue. It just all depends. We hope we get an audience. Mm. Uh, tickets available at the door. And, um, yeah, we'd lo- we hope that, that we rekindle that great love. I mean, but, but, I mean, Dublin was famous for its cantatas. I mean, the John Beckett cantatas were brought to the proms and it yeah. was really well known for them. And hopefully, well... Let's get the first year over and see how we how we. Well, fare. every best wish for the first year, Thank and you. look forward to speaking to you over the next nine years as well. No pressure. That's Blondin <laughs> Murphy, artistic director of the upcoming Bach Church Cantata series. Certainly worth checking out. Oh, at least one of those if you want to sample a little bit of Bach. Three concerts: Sunday the twentieth of January, Sunday the fourth of February, Sunday the eleventh of February. All of it in St Anne's Church on Dawson Street in Dublin. Tickets at the door, as Blondin said, or you can check out Eventbrite. Now, just before we go to uh, album reviews, very exciting news that I think I should share with you immediately. Great news for Irish film fans. In fact, the Irish band Kneecap has just won the Audience Award at the Sundance Film uh, Festival in Utah, an accolade that only one other Irish feature ever received John Carney's Once in 2007. Now, there is good company to be in. film is based on the riotous and groundbreaking Irish language rap trio Kneecap, chronicles how fate brought them together and how they went on to, quote, change the sound of Irish music forever. This is the first acting role, by the way, for the three lads of Kneecap being called Mohara, Mowgli Bap and DJ Provi. They are supported by no less than Oscar-nominated actor Michael Fassbender, uh, Simone Kirby and Jessica Reynolds. Uh, it was Mokara who was in with me a while back. I couldn't get a word out of him about <laughs> what the film was about. He was scared to say anything about what it was about. Uh, but they, Mo, or Mo, Mo, Mowgli and DJ all say that they are delighted to receive the award, especially as theirs was the first Irish language film to be selected for the festival. That a big first as well. They hope it will give people in Ireland the confidence to pursue the arts through their native con one usage as is their motto and I would agree with them on that and so say all of us Corgorgius Lenny Cap, and indeed to the film's director and writer uh, Rich Pepiat Kneecap will be released in Irish cinemas by Wildcard and Curzon later this year as will be the band's debut album and Sony Pictures Classics picked it up at the festival it will be seen by audiences in North America and other major markets as well let's I mean, <laughs> it's hard to find a wee bit of Kneecap that you can play without getting somebody into trouble so let's have a listen to 31 safe seconds of Kneecap Kneecap 
Ikon, Igmohi Kosala Kakak, Ni Ligaman, never so when Yaman she stopped. I was seen not why. Much but you mogali back, her rim array bound, turns all the back and a chat and never come alone. But I'm Tamo going on, Tan Silsha Baru Garris, the Akaramagan Uridama on, Kishiri at the Kyongiri, Eli Ahasak, and Darashak, the Battle of a Tax, Makahi to Hannah Kron Tossi, a wide row, a respectful curl, Hannah. Wow, yeah. Better way to live, um, Shlini's Fiar, a waro. I don't, don't, don't know how that would translate. I'd need time to get me to get me Gwil get in order. Anyway, better way to live from Kneecap, who have just won, it's just been announced that they won the Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that film um, when it, it, it'll be hitting our, our cinemas. That is very exciting indeed. However, it is Friday and it is the final half hour of the programme. And as usual at this point in the week, we look at the new album releases, The Smile, band which started off as a side project during, uh, for Tom York and Johnny Greenwood uh, during lockdown. Uh, they being of Radiohead, they have released their second album. It's called Wall of Eyes. Future Islands return with their seventh album, People Who Aren't There Anymore. Band's frontman Samuel T. Herring came to prominence in 2014 with an amazing performance of the track Seasons Waiting For You on David Letterman's Late Show. But an even more amazing dance, which was very like skiing, it has to be said. And I think that's what happened when he came to Ireland. Then everybody did the dance at the gig. And Modra, uh, sticking with the owl Gwiliga, the debut album from Galway band New Dad. Half the album was written in their native Galway, completed it then when they relocated to London. With me in studio to talk about all three albums, Andrea Cleary and... uh, Simon Marr. By the way, I did I tell you, you can watch us on live stream. Forgot to say that, I think, um, earlier. You can watch us on live stream, rte.ie forward slash arena. If you are so inclined and to help you get your computers turned on and the cameras whirring, let's have a listen to a little bit of the Smile um, title track and opening track of the, of the album, which is called I've Totally Lost It. Where is it gone? Here, yes. The title track and the opening track of the album, which is called the Wall of Eyes. There we go. Uh, that is Wall of Eyes opening and title track from new album from The Smile. The Smile being, as I said, the side project of Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. I'm hearing a lot of Radiohead in there, as it has to be said, and that is hardly surprising, Andrea. Yeah, Tom York, Johnny Greenwood, and Tom Skinner. We have to give him his his dues as well. Uh, mm. he's, oh, he's involved. He's come too, yeah. on, and this drummer, uh, yeah. drummer, jazz drummer, uh, which uh, Simon and I were speaking beforehand, saying that we. We were both a bit nervous about yeah, yeah. <laughs> our, our, our Lennon and McCartney working with a jazz drummer, but I think it works very, very well. Well, as you you were doing your kind of bossa nova moves. My, to little, that, my little bossa nova moves, just just for the live stream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, a, a lot of Radiohead on this. Um, York and, and Greenwood have very, very distinctive styles and sounds. Even when they're experimenting, they mm. sound like themselves. And together, like they are a, a, a duo that just work so brilliantly and so wonderfully together yeah. that they kind of can't escape the sound that that they create together but this album I th- I think there's moments in it that that pushes them out of that radiohead sound I think this this bossa nova thing 
I love it, but it's not something we've heard from them before. It's yeah. something a bit more experimental. So there's Radiohead and then there's also something else. There's I, also the smile, you know. I, I, the other side of it is now, sorry to be raining on the parade here. I do like to hear the odd lyric and to know what they're singing about. Was yeah. it just me or... Are they? Is the, are the vocals very far away back in the distance in the mix here, and therefore is it just about texture rather than themes and lyrics? Well, it w- it would always have been a Radiohead th- thing, yeah. and Tom York was never the sort of man who would be jumping around at the front mm. of stage or screaming yeah. into a microphone, a la Liam yeah. Gallagher or whatever. So it's always going to be a sound that they have. But I think what's really good about this is that they're not afraid to be what yeah. they are. It's not like okay, yeah, yeah, look, yeah. we got to be different for the sake of being different. Now they were always difficult for the sake of being difficult and that's what you do when you're a rock and roll star but they were they're not trying to be different for the sake of being different and I think that's why the sound on this works although we have no experience of either man being difficult so we should let them <laughs> for fear that their solicitors go on to us tomorrow morning um, I suppose yes they have a they have a bit of a reputation okay but uh, musically Apart from that bossa nova, uh, what other styles are we getting across? How varied is it across the album? Well, for me, something I noticed the first time I listened to it was that there's two moments on this record that are almost that big A Day in the Life Beatles Mm. swell moment (laughs) on on, on two different tracks on on this album. And I don't know how they've gotten away with doing that, but they have. But I mean, other other songs, you know, much more... um, foregrounded vocals much more kind of snarly vocals on which is it um, is it friend of a friend I was thinking is it friend of a friend the, the, and, the, and, and read the room both mm. he's, he's much more foregrounded yeah. much more mm. uh, upfront with his vocal style and they're they're rock songs as opposed to yes yeah, so they're, they're kind, kind of, of more traditional songs radio play type of song yeah, rather yeah, yeah. than radio head type of song yes, they're, yeah. the radio play which you could imagine friend friend of a friend actually being it's like we've listened to our Beatles records as well yes, like, you know, there's, yeah. there's a definitely a bit of day in the life off that yeah. as well All right, let's have a listen Little slow middle <laughs> section there. Did, uh, did Paul McCartney come in to record that with him? <laughs> I mean, that is real Beatles. The middle section in in, in particular. And, uh, mm. It's it's so beautiful. I mean, what I really like about this, both Tom York and Johnny Greenwood are very very experimental, and they've done really out there stuff. But there's moments of sort of levity yeah. and melody on this album where they sort of, they lean in, into convention. They sort of allow you a bit of convention and a bit of yeah. prettiness. And I think that that's what sets this album apart from their debut album. I think it's much more honed. Right. It's much better sequenced and they're not afraid to be beautiful with what it is that they're doing. And I think, uh, this is, oh, I was so tempted, but it's too early in the year. I'm giving it 4.5. 4.5. Yes. Too early in the year for a <laughs> five. Too early. <laughs> and, and Simon, would you also send to listen there, particularly in that track, if you listen to what that drummer is doing, you can hear all those jazz, oh, it's that really, jazz yeah. background because yeah. there's a lot going on in this kit, but it's not, it's not swamping everything. No, and it's interesting because that's 
something that as well has changed from the first album that he played on the first album, but you uh, wouldn't necessarily have known yeah. so where it's now. Much more part oh, of it. very much it's like a trio now as opposed to a duo. Yeah, and it it really adds to it. Well, yeah. I thought my worry was that it would take away from it, but it really adds to it. Stars from and you. Th- it's a very solid four. A very solid four. Too early in the year even for a four point five from you. It would <laughs> say that's the smile and wall of eyes. Let's move on then to uh, future islands. People who aren't there anymore is the title of the album formed nearly two decades ago in Baltimore the new album comes uh, as a new chapter for the band what what page have they had to turn well what what they Alan? have done is they, they've gone through a phase where everybody in the band was happy and that didn't necessarily work for the music oh, for, <laughs> so, for a rock band so yeah so both frontman and bass player have gone through really bad breakups in recent mm. times and this has for want of a better word inspired this particular album you know and I was even hoping I have to say when I heard the album the first time around I hoped it would be a bit more bleak than it was Mm -hmm. because they are they're always that little bit too stoic Mm. for me sometimes you know where I thought this time everything has gone horribly wrong for them this is a chance to utterly wallow and they haven't quite done it but when they do they do it so well All right, opening track is called King of Sweden There he is, King of Sweden. Do you know what? Um, and you have explained it to me as we were listening, uh, Andrea. He was quite happy during the opening track of the album, wasn't he? He was the King of Sweden. He was married to the Queen of Sweden. Yes, his, his ex <laughs> was... Metaphorically, uh, yeah. Ex, ex was a, a Swedish woman. So, I mean, we find him at the opening of the album. Delirious Walking around the streets of Sweden. Can't believe he's got this, you know, his, this woman mm. on his arm. And then... Oh, it all goes bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it doesn't stay good for him. But he he has a singular vocal quality, doesn't he, Harry? Oh, he really, you know, he really does. Now, I remember the first time seeing the clips when they appeared on YouTube of him on uh, with Letterman, Letterman yeah. beating the chest and yeah. doing the like doing crazy the, <laughs> vocals in that, in yeah, that performance. Yeah. And take Letterman. all of that you got. Yeah, said, but, yeah. But, but thinking at the time, kind of, this is just all seems a little bit strange. But when you saw the 30 second clip, it was way out of context. Yeah. But then when you saw the stuff performed live and you kind of thought, and now it starts to make sense and that he gives it and fair play to him. Like, you know, there's no dialing in with this. And yeah. there's no, I'm going to ease back on the voice for anything ever. I don't think he's able to, you know, and I think that's where you get that particular sound from. Yeah, he, he, he seems to be, he has to just let it all out. There's big, big expressive nature to what he does. And that's certainly there in the Letterman performance. I was watching it on YouTube again today. And the, the dancing, again, the, the singing is amazing, but the dancing is something else. Yeah. He obviously did a bit of skiing in his day. <laughs> I think it's safe to say, go check it out if you don't know what we're talking about there in terms of, uh, put in YouTube, Future Island, David Letterman yeah. up it'll come um, things are not things don't stay rosy for, for very long though Andrea they don't stay rosy and I think I've I, I've got a kind of a a juxtaposing contradicting uh, problem with this album one is that it's he's sort of so dour on it that I find I find it interesting and I find his or uninteresting rather and I find him leaning into cliche a little bit too much and also I agree with Simon this is not dour enough for me this yeah. is not sad enough for me it's 
there's there's something about the, the the songs themselves. They're they're either very upbeat, like we've just heard, but with sad lyrics, yeah. or they're sparser, kind of going for more of a Blue Nile sort of thing, mm. which is not quite earned on any of the tracks that they that they do it on. Honestly, it's it's twelve tracks, and I I would say the majority of them all just sound like one another. Yeah, there's that was, too uh, much um, on this album. Yeah, I, I must admit that as, as I was going through it, I was kind of finding it hard to yeah. to differentiate. The King of Sweden kind of stands out because it is quite yeah. upbeat. Let's have a listen to the Thief. Just as a, I was listening there to the thief, and I was saying to to Andrea Simon, I, I kind of have the sense I'm hearing a character there singing a song, yeah. rather than him. Because the, the big standout thing about that letter, I think, is that it was, it was him coming up out of his own stomach. You yeah. could hear mm. that it was a real self self expression. There's a kind of a a self-awareness is kind of an arch quality to what he's doing there. Mm, there is. And you, you think is that there's only so much that maybe you can give of yourself or maybe there was a, a, an initial bunch of stories that were dying to come out. But I would have thought that this would have given him the perfect yeah. opportunity yeah. now to to, to to really let go. But I have to say, I still can't resist the synthesizers. I just love Future Island synthesizers. And I can forgive pretty much anything else with those synths in the background. <laughs> you back to your youth, does it? That, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not so long ago. Yes. I was going to yeah, say, yeah. only a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and stars view on this one, Simon? I'm going to give it three and a half. Three and a half, Andrea? Um, I don't think the melodies and the choruses are strong enough for a synth pop record. I don't think it's beautiful and solemn enough for a kind of a sad breakup record. So it's two and a half for two me. Two and a half. Yeah. Not happy. No. Uh, People <laughs> Who Aren't There Anymore, the title of the new Future Islands album. And finally then, debut album from Galway band New Dad. Uh, or sorry, Yes, yeah, the band is New Dad. The album is called Madra. And this, I think I've started everything with the opening track, so I will continue doing that. This is a track called Angel. A little bit of the opening track there, uh, Angel from New Dad's debut album, Modern. Who are we talking about when we talk about New Dad's? So, Go- Galway Four Piece, uh, uh, Julie Dawson is the front woman in the band, released a whole bunch of singles, did a six music session, managed to get themselves a very, like, a decent enough deal, and have got to the point now where they're releasing this, but have been, have got that almost a blessing or a curse, have been critically acclaimed oh, yeah. for about the last three years mm. and have been releasing music and all awful lot mm. in the last little while but people have really been building up and there's been a lot of expectation around this album and what 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 where are we in in the music world how would you describe what they're doing for the most part Andrea I mean so so far I mean there's there's a funny thing that happens on this album that we'll, yeah. we'll talk about in a minute but so far I mean we're, we're talking uh comparisons to the likes of Just Mustard and Beba Doobie. We're talking about the kind of the new gaze, yeah. shoe gaze uh, kind of genre. It's 
it, you can definitely hear it in in the song that we just heard there, Angel. Um, but I think what New Dad do on on this album is give us a bit of a false start with those first three or four tracks, and then from track five onwards, we've got pop songs, and the album really, really opens up, and it, they really sound like an original. Yeah, because yeah, the first the first few tracks, I must say, I was kind of a little bit. Downcast, yeah, mm. yeah, and it's it's very because particularly for a debut album, bands tend to be under an awful lot of pressure. It's like right, front load the singles. Mm. You know, we're going to get them in the first yeah. three songs. But this album, and I n- noted in that is that the first two or three songs, it sort of builds. They're okay, but it sort of builds. But it gets into that sort of middle third, and it is incredibly yeah. strong. And as you say, it's the pop songs. You know, there's four or five songs that you, there's at times you're just going. Wow. Yeah, right. this, one, one, this, of the, one of them that stand out moments for you is Let Go. Okay. Let's hear a bit of that. a lot happier when it gets into that um, middle third and second half of the album uh, essentially Andrea yeah for me I mean you know I, I, I think the vocals and the lyrics across the album are really really great they are they're, they're kind of melodramatic and I don't mean that as an insult I mean I, I, I mean that they, they they give the you yeah. know the time and attention and weight to the feelings that, that, that she that yeah. she has, but I find them. Uh, I find the lyrics much more convincing in right. in the pop Latter songs. Part. Yeah, stars. Uh, this is three and a half stars for me. And really finally like from you. Yeah, so. I know. I I really really enjoyed this album. Roll on album number two, and I'm giving it four. A very solid four. That's Madra from New Dad, their debut album. People who aren't there anymore from Future Islands and Wall of Eyes, the three albums that Andrea Clary and uh, Simon Marr were speaking to us about on this Friday evening. And that is our lot for tonight.